We back. Now Nostalgia Pod. Coming at you. Giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan with my co-host Dave Martinson. Dave, Chance the Rapper came out with his new album, The Big Day. And we got a big podcast coming at you. How you doing first, though? I'm doing well, man. Lots of exciting things to talk about, both good and bad. Happy to be back, like Chance. A little, little tease for you right there. And Before we get too far into it, and Dave tells you what was good and bad about this past week, hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. Go to SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod to find all the ways to follow the podcast and give us a rating and review on iTunes. All of it helps us a lot. Also, go to our Twitter at NostalgiaPod and give us a, a follow there and interact with us. Dave, last week we did a bit of a different podcast for us. We weren't reviewing the weekly pop culture, but more of a, a broader scope talking about Tarantino movies, Emmys, Emmy nominations. We, we have a lot to catch up on. And one major thing that came out last Friday was, was it last Friday or last? Two Saturdays now. Two Saturdays, geez. Yeah. Been a while. Was Marvel's announcement of Phase 4. They were at Comic-Con. Was that well, the one in San Diego? I assume. Correct. The big West Coast one. Very big one. And there was a lot of different news there. We're not going to run through all of it. There's been a lot written about it, some very good articles. But I wanted to ask you, what are you most excited for from the Phase 4 announcements? A lot there for sure. And not a whole lot was surprising. We, we, we did a video about what we expected to see in Phase 4, or announced anyway, a few months ago. Check that out, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. But what stood out to me, which was something that we kind of expected, but for, from August 2019, next month, until... February 2021, 18 months, a full year and a half, we're only getting two Marvel movies, Black Widow and the Eternals. It's kind of interesting to get this nice little extended break, considering the past two years we've had three full movies a year. Overall, though, it's nothing's too surprising. Thor 4 is probably the most exciting movie that was officially announced. Having Portman come back and do uh, the Lady Thor storyline to yeah. his back as well, that's, that just sounds really cool. Doctor Strange, they have Liz, uh, Scarlet Witch coming back into the fold interesting mm-hmm. it seems like they're really going for it with that one um, i was surprised though overall that we're not getting black panther 2 until 2022 at the earliest which is kind of surprising didn't i really thought i mean we already know cougar signed back on you would have thought 2021 was a shoe in for that but guess not yeah i wonder if coogler has something else that he's working on or or trying to do first but i agree thor is probably the thing i'm most excited for you know the last thor movie which we reviewed you can check that out uh, on our youtube page was one of our favorites of recent. You know, it hit just the perfect tone in terms of a superhero movie that infused a lot of charisma and humor into it. And Chris Hemsworth really leveled up in terms of yeah. Thor as a character. Just a really awesome pairing. And I think pulling Portman back into that fold and the Lady Thor thing is a nice, a nice wrinkle to it. Also, you have to assume the Guardians are probably going to show up in some way, or at least some of them will be involved in that, so that will make that fun. We, we know there's there's three dates with no movies uh, in 2022, and the February one, I think we're all assuming that's Black Panther 2, the May one, probably Captain Marvel 2, and the July one, likely Guardians Galaxy 3, which we already know. Is, we, we know these movies are being made, but they didn't give us dates or titles, so w- would Guardians appear in Thor a year earlier? Maybe some of them? Wouldn't be surprised. What I was thinking about, honestly, is them bringing Jane back, Portman back in a real way kind of makes sense because there's not really a whole lot like Thor and Jace characters left. They're all kind of dead. We know Loki won't be back. Yeah. And like all the Asgard people that no one's that attached to anyway, most of them are gone anyway. So that, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I mean, 
We know Fantastic Four is officially in development. That's obviously very exciting. We went into that a few months ago. The biggest surprise, of course, is that Mahershala Ali is playing Blade. Uh, and the fact that he just put his dick on the table after winning his second Oscar and called up Feige and crew and was like, yeah, I want to do Blade. And they're like, okay. <laughs> now it'll probably be PG-13. We have no reason to believe it won't be PG-13 if it's an MCU movie. But still, that's exciting as hell. But that sounds very far away. Yeah. Didn't see it coming. Definitely a, uh, a huge flex by Mahershala. You know, I, where are you at with Blade? Do, do you like the original ones with uh, Wesley Snipes? The first one is very influential, very important. And I think that's the only one that you could say is good. Mm-hmm. The other two, yeah. two and Trinity are uh, pretty mad. I mean, at the time, though, uh, they were pretty well liked. But yeah, they don't hold up at all. The first one's good. Yeah. But like Wesley and that and just the, the Blade outfit is just such a... Yeah. Iconic image, you know, and, and it's and they're fun movies. Even when they're they're bad, they're still pretty fun. So I think Mahershala is amazing casting, and he probably knows that he can kill this role. So I'm really excited for that. I'm also really excited for uh, Shang Chi. Yeah, definitely. which I, I think can have has potential to be a major film for Marvel because it probably is going to get a huge backing from overseas, but specifically oh, China and certainly. Asia. And it's pretty cool because the the story of who's playing Shang-Chi, his name is Simon Liu, tweeted at them like, what, like two years ago, something yep. like, whenever you want to talk, Chang Li or Shang-Chi, hit me mm-hmm. up. And two years later, it was cast as it. So that's broken cool into story. existence. Really cool. As always, shoot your shot. That's kind of the message. A lot. I mean, we're going to be talking about Marvel, obviously, for the next however many years <laughs> not going anywhere i am amazed at you know you talked about how going into spider-man uh far from home you were feeling a little a little bit of superhero fatigue a little bit like do we need this movie this quickly and i think a lot of people are feeling that way yeah. mcu fatigued in particular like i'm excited as fuck for joker for example right but mcu in particular post endgame did you feel excited after this phase four announcement yeah, certainly. They didn't immediately announce a team-up. You know, we again, a few months ago, we theorized about potential big bads post-Thanos and Kang and all, all that all that stuff and where they would try and take this. And at least for the moment, it feels like there might be less of a central through line the way the Infinity Saga was all weaved together. Now, I'm sure when we see Black Widow in May, given that that's a, a, pre- a period prequel film, we'll get some set up and I'm sure Shang-Chi will introduce more. So I'm sure that's a stupid thing to say. But at least right now, the semblance of it's not quite as connected and the movies get to kind of be their own weird things, kind of what DC is doing right now. Uh, that's just kind of exciting to me because it's kind of more interesting uh, artistically. So we'll see how real that is as the movies come out, of course. But the other thing that I think stood out was that the shows, you know, we already knew about almost all these shows. Um, Baron Zemo from Civil War is coming back for Falcon Winter Soldier. That's an interesting wrinkle, but it ultimately feels like these shows are just like, well, you guys won't be in the movies ever again, so you guys get these shows. You know, I mean, Scarlet Witch will be strange. Other than that, I don't think we're going to see any of those guys for a long time. Yeah, no, and, and WandaVision is like the worst name of a TV show, I feel like, uh, I could possibly think of. <laughs> Anyways, while, while we move on, because like I said, we'll be talking Marvel for a while. We want to start with an album by Maxo Cream. I didn't get to this album, so I'm going to kind of let you take the floor here. Yeah, man. So Maxo Cream, we have his single Meet Again on our spotify playlist nostalgia best of 2019 so make sure you follow that and that was the first single from this new album brandon banks his second album and maxo cream is a guy who i became aware of in the weirdest ways like he was featured on an old one of the first really old playboy cardi hits fetty he was just a featured verse on at the end and then he popped back up on my radar like early 2017 with uh 
Mars, this loose single that had a really fun Uzi chorus that did pretty well for him. And then Pumpkin, his debut album, comes out early uh, last year, 2018, and got critical acclaim. It's a great record. We didn't review it, but it was really awesome. And this new one, Brandon Banks, is kind of, he just continues to level up on the promise we saw on Pumpkin. And what's cool about Maxwell Cream is he's a Houston rapper, and he collabs with Travis on this, which is a nice cool thing to see. But he's a Houston rapper who is really about the like the hard street life, but he tells his stories in an interesting way. Uh, he was previously incarcerated, previously ran drugs, pretty real rap sheet for sure. But now since the past few years when he's been like a full-time rapper, he's just a really good storyteller, which is really cool. You know, there's a lot of, you know, street rappers and trappers and all that. And a lot of times they don't have a lot to say, you know, and like I always think of like a guy who from Chicago, like Chicago, like Little Dirk, for example, they don't even sound anything alike, but he's always talked up as someone who's a really personal and a really detailed storyteller about his struggles. And yet, I never felt like he said anything at all. Whereas Max O'Cream, I think because he's a competent rapper and because he has really interesting ways to frame like the stories he's telling, sometimes it's really matter of fact, sometimes it's much more metaphorical. It just, it just really compelling street shit. So I recommend, I wanted to talk about this. This came out two Fridays ago and you know, and I knew it wasn't going to get a whole lot of attention. He's not like a super big rapper, but I wanted to just mention this album just because I think it has a lot to like, uh, depending on if you're really any kind of hip hop fan, because there are songs that go hard and songs that tell a story and songs that do both. And I think like Meet Again, for example, uh, you can really dig into that a lot still as well. The the last track, the second single, really like these songs. Also, awesome features, 3AM, great Schoolboy Q feature. And Murderblock has an awesome ASAP Ferg feature where he kind of flips the Bone Thugs uh, flow from Notorious Thugs, the old Biggie song. So, yeah, if you like storytelling in your rap, you like that like Houston sound. You know, Houston's hot right now with Megan Stallion. Don't sleep on Max O'Cream, man. There's some. This is a great record. I was gonna say Houston seems to be really having a moment right now. You know, uh, Travis, uh, Megan The Stallion, yep. and Maxo. I-, I saw Pitchfork gave this album some love too. So. Uh, Houston, got got to dig the rap scene right now. Why don't we Why don't we move on though to Rich Brian, the guy we we reviewed last year, his uh, debut album Amen. Really uh, interesting that you know he's a he's a person who has risen to fame in a I guess a, a more it's le- not as unorthodox as it used to be, but kind of through like YouTube videos and mm-hmm. kind of goofy stuff. Originally was uh was it like uh, Real Chiga was his rap name rich chigga yeah rich chigga that's um, the big breakout hit for him and then dropped amen and i think we were pleasantly surprised at how how good it was because we, i think our expectations going into it were kind of low you know he's someone that didn't have a, a huge musical back background so we were like yeah. ah, what are we gonna expect the sailor feels like a major step up this this sophomore album what I, at least from what i hear is i hear him going from this almost like sideshow kind of like gimmicky person into like a real artist with this and it was really exciting the the production it was super smooth i I thought there was a lot of really cool choices in terms of the sound he was going for but before i I get too far into it how did you feel about rich brian's uh sophomore album the salad i agree with everything you said yeah uh the growth is just so apparent and Mm -hmm. you know he turns 20 in september going from someone who wasn't given off the energy of being a serious musician early with the Rich Chicken name, the Dat Stick songs, all that. Then to Amen, where he established himself. No, he's he's real rapper, and he's actually pretty good. And now we have Sailor, where he's leveled up again, I think lyrically for sure, but also diversifying his sound. It it's happened in not that uh, long stretch of time. And 
as you said, I, I'm really excited just for the future of him. We know the 88 Rising base is really strong, and it's a good support system for the, all the Asian artists they have under, in, their, in their stable right now. And yeah, I'm just really excited to keep, see where he keeps going, because I think there's a lot, lot to like on this which was the case with Amen, but again, he just keeps taking the next step, and it's really cool to see, because again, he's not someone who's super mainstream uh, in the hip-hop space, so love it. Yeah, I think the thing that most impressed me in terms of this like step up as an artist is our knock in our last review was his songs didn't have a lot to say on Amen. You know, they were kind of jokey, but it seemed they were, they were very surface level, but I feel like on this album, he really starts to dig in a little bit more into his story, you know, his rise to fame, failed relationships, things like that. It seemed like he just had a little more to say and he said it so confidently and he really, I think, was able to display that he's getting a grasp for flow. Because I think on Amen, another thing that kind of stood out was his flow was sometimes too similar from song to song and didn't really stand out. But this, you really notice him changing up his flow from song to song and even mid-song sometimes, which I thought was a really good sign for him growing as a rapper. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm just thinking of the recent releases on 88. We talked about the Head in the Clouds group album, but more specifically, Joji's album Ballads 1, and then this year, Higher Brothers with Five Star. And I guess jo- Joji's actually kind of similar just because the way they both came up as non-traditional musicians. But I think, I mean, Rich Brian's kind of always been tabbed as like the, the pure hip-hop figurehead of 88. But, you know, I'm just, I, I like this more than anything else I've heard from the label thus far, just because I think that the ambition is strongest on this. But, I mean, like, Higher Brothers, too, like, they, they don't have the lyrical content that Rich Brian chose on this, but they're just making, like, really good Chinese trap, and that's totally cool, and, like, it sounds awesome, and they have good features. But Rich Brian, because he's 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 not in that lane, never was in that lane, post that stick, you kind of wanted to see, like, wh- wh- where is he going to go? And as you said, on Amen, we didn't really know what the end game was for him just because... It was ultimately middling if proving competence, right? And now releasing songs like Yellow, which lyrically he's really exploring his both journey to the States as a immigrant from Indonesia, as well as a Asian artist in a space that does not have a lot of Asians. You know, he's tackling a lot of stuff there. And meanwhile, that's that's the first real and that was one of the lead singles, but that's one of the first first songs he ever released that is very melodic something he hasn't mm-hmm. really done at all. And the fact that it actually is produced well and sounds pretty good um, is almost like a bonus to me. Like I was just I was just going to appreciate him give, taking the swing, but I actually think it lands. And then meanwhile, on the same album, we have a song like Kids, which is a traditional boom-bap rap where Rich Brian's like, oh yeah, I, I'm still like a good rapper. Like Listen to this. And he actually has real bars on that, shouting out 88, shouting out Nipsey and Mac. Uh, I like that song a lot. And then you know, towards the end, it's only like 100 Degrees. Again, get to that melodic flow, almost like more like a like a pop trap song, you know? So mm-hmm. I think that the variety sprinkled in around taking some bigger lyrical swings, just uh, it's pretty impressive considering, again, the journey he's been on in only a few years. Yeah, you mentioned Kids. I, that was one that stood out to me right away. Um, you know, I really like the horns in that. And then it brings in these, uh, this this like simple beat underneath it. It just feels so triumphant. Something that actually reminded me a little bit of, of Chance in a way. Uh, someone we're going to be talking about but his last album coloring book was just so triumphant in that same sense and then i i thought the ending slow down turbo to curious with uh joji was was really uh really strong so um just some 
just some really uh, great songs on here. And going back to like that sound choice, I feel like he kept it simple for the most part. There wasn't like a lot of like complex beats or anything like that, but he chose to use like different instruments, like you know, a song like "Curious." Uh, it has just like the simple guitar loop that keeps playing over and over with these like woodwind flints, co- uh, woodwind flutes coming in at the end. Um, and just this really simple beat, but he just flows over it so naturally and creates this very, like, a, I think, unique sound to what he wants to be as an artist, so that, that mel- melodic sense you talked about. So just uh, some really good stuff here from Rich Brian. Really excited to see where, where he goes moving forward. Um, any other songs that stood out to you or any last thoughts? No, I, I think you nailed those. I mean, second track, uh, pa pop pop pa with RZA. <laughs> yeah. Getting a RZA yeah. feature and, it, and not not like a mailed in RZA feature, like it actually like fits the song, mentions Rich Brian, like that's also a crazy good cosign. Yeah, to say the obvious. Absolutely, someone else that got a really good cosign, YBN Corday. Basically, after the the YBN the mixtape 2017, 2018, 2018, Dre was uh Dr. Dre was on this guy, this kid mm-hmm. and signed him and didn't sign him was just working with him working with him okay it, that was i think something that caught a lot of people's attention because it was like this this artist doesn't have a lot of workout yeah it's interesting that dre is working with somebody with s- such a small pedigree at this point but i think he saw something that he was able to bring out in lost boy and that's that uh, i think ybn corday could be a real serious player in the rap game moving forward um lot the lost boy uh is this his debut album yeah the funny thing is as we've been talking about, he busted on the scene only a year and a half ago, really, and the, with the YBN Corday name anyway. The, he did a good My Name Is Eminem freestyle, which blew up on the World Star YouTube channel. Then he quickly released the J. Cole 1985 response track, which was like, wait a minute, this guy's YBN in his name, yet he's like making a thoughtful, not bitter response to J. Cole talking about the young kids. Damn. And then he had like a few other loose singles. Of course, Kung Fu got a lot of attention. Like, oh wait, and this kid also is like really dexterous with his rapping. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Keep let's keep it going. And he was only on a few tracks on that YBN mixtape that you mentioned. Kung Fu was one of those tracks. I think Target, another one, talking about police. You know, he's like, all right, this guy, this guy's pretty thoughtful. And then you then you see the 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 Dre Instagram as you mentioned, and he just starts getting tons of cosigns everywhere. Beginning of this year. He's featured on Logic's album. Logic's a major rap star. You know, it's a pretty good company to have, despite our thoughts on that album. Sure. Check that review out. This whole, like, the hype leading up to this, he makes X himself freshman, obviously, just because the talent is so present. And that was mm-hmm. when we predicted no-brainer. But this, we wanted to see a full project from him, because the only projects he had had, the, I think, like, the past, like, three years, they were under a different name. He used to go by uh, Entendre, was his old name. Reminds me of Logic. But yeah, this, <laughs> this, lost, this Lost Boy project and came together pretty quickly we really only know it was coming until he released um that bad idea collab with chance and have mercy had come out a few months ago and is still on this as well but yeah the um the the hype was i think uh quite high but as his album uh lets you know when you listen to it it was also thusfully deserved and for someone we've been talking about pretty routinely despite a lack of output uh, it's pretty validating to have someone deliver when you believed in them at a young age, you know, I, I, I'm so hyped that this is as good as it is. What was your takeaway? No, I, I, like I said, I thought this proved that there's so much potential here. And I think what I found most refreshing about it was, like you said, the YBN name, I think in the past is kind of known for these like vicious 
comebacks and and rebuttals in some sense. And this song, this album is just really joyous and really grateful and really positive in a lot of ways. And I found that to be probably the thing I liked most about it was it felt very accessible. And the music was this awesome blend of uh, he's what he's West Coast, right? Technically, or nah, he's from uh, North Car- North Carolina. But it sounds a little bit more Chicago. Um, sure. Then I thought just because of the fu- like infusion of some jazz, hip hop, and things yeah. like that in there. Mm-hmm. But overall, I was just really impressed with how this came together and how he was able to establish himself as someone that we really you know should continue to be taken seriously and be excited for. What did you? What what stood out to you most, or what songs did you like the most? We knew he was thoughtful. We knew he was respectful of past generations of hip-hop definitely comes across as someone who's a little more wiser beyond his years right and i mean someone asked him about his top fives the other day and he said tupac biggie jay-z nas and uh, big l in whatever order and, and that that's a, a great list but a lot of the you know his peers a lot of them are influenced by like little wayne more 2000s artists um gucci Mane, stuff like that right but, but corday really has that uh 90s uh base uh base of uh inspiration which is cool another uh, similar to logic and what i was what i wanted to see from this was i wanted to see if he can make songs that can do both can you tell a story and make the song still hot because that's always something we talk about where there are artists that have good lyrics but the songs are sleepy you know no one's going to put on your song uh, even if you have a good message i think when lupe's at his worst that's a problem common problem but lost and found the last track on this album does not have that problem. RPM with Anderson Pack does not have that problem. Broke mm-hmm. as fuck does not have that problem. And that has an amazing beat flip halfway through. Yep. Meanwhile, he does have some of the slower tracks. And even the song like Have Mercy, which I think is just a competent song as far as the young standard that is Corday standards. But this, the diversity uh, in, in the track list is pretty great. And yeah, I think we could trim this down a little bit, 15 tracks, maybe cut down a little bit. And he switches his flows a lot. Sometimes the flows he uses are a little simple, but... The, the talent's so obvious and, and the ceiling is just yeah. so high that I just don't know how you can be too negative. Like in terms of his, his peers, I mean, I don't really know who we put put with him besides like on like Tier of Whack or someone. It, it's, it's a short list. Yeah, it's definitely a short list. And, you know, just the, uh, you kind of spoke to it a little bit, but the the collaborators on this, Anderson Pac, Chance the Rapper, Pusha T, Ty Dolla Sign, Meek Mill. I mean, these are some heavy hitters. Yep. Um, you know, and I, I think... They each kind of bring varying degrees of, of uh, success to their their turns on this album, but just the fact that these people want to work with him um, and want to be making art with him is really impressive. And yeah, I think Tierra Whack feels like a, a good a good comparison for the moment. Just like an artist that seems pretty unique, thoughtful, but in, in a different way th- than a lot of artists like them. You know, Tierra Whack, I think especially is very uh unique in terms of her thought and perspective on on rap and where she's going with it but only only really positive things to say about this lost boy album you know you already you already mentioned uh, i think broke his fucking bad idea i also really like thanksgiving was just a track that stood out to me yeah i I don't think there's too many that that run long or feel unearned to be on this album and just a really exciting debut uh it's it's great to be talking about some some young artists that really are, are impressing us uh because i think you know, it kind of started off the year hot, and it's been a bit of a lull, I think, as of recently. At least it's felt that way, but this feels like 
end of summer is bringing the heat. Sure. It's funny, uh, RPM with Anderson, getting a bit of a mixed reception. It's funny. Like I, I, I like I liked it a lot. I think the energy is so great. The beat's awesome. And also, at the end, when they go into couplets and they go back and forth, it's just really fun. Mm-hmm. But I think some people are kind of like knocking on the puns and saying it's kind of hokey. Corny. Yeah. And I mean, like, yeah, sometimes I, he has, has corny lines. That's, that, that's fine with me. He's hardly alone in that, that respective, let's be real. And I think when you can make the song broke as fuck right after you make something corny, how much does the corniness matter? Um, I thought the Meek, mm-hmm. the Meek performance on this was pretty good. Like, I thought Meek, yeah. Meek really brought it for sure. The only thing I raise my eyebrow at every time is uh, calling Tentacion the pock of his time and comparing him to a young Obama. Nah, bro. It ain't that. <laughs> I, I, know, I know a lot of people ride for X problems and all, but no. He's not fucking Tupac. That's a stupid thing to say. Yeah, and certainly not um, the young Barack Obama. <laughs> That's just ludicrous. Young Barack uh, No, I, No, not actually. <laughs> Whatever. Good I agree. <laughs> Why don't we move on to someone who also dropped their debut album, Chance the Rapper. Dave, I'll, I'll let you get on your high horse about that. I mean, it's not even... My horse is fucking real low with this, man. Chance the Rapper drops his debut album the same day as YBN Corday. Where is the lie? Well, let me tell you where the lie is. Chance the Rapper won Best Rap Album two and a half years ago at the Grammys in early 2017. Yes, Coloring Book was initially presented as a mixtape, but then he ran it as an album. That settles that. <laughs> Not to mention, when Coloring Book came out, Chance took 500k from Apple Music to make it a streaming exclusive. Remember when that was still a thing in the streaming services. Chance the Rapper made $21.5 million in 2018, good for 14th on the Hip Hop Cash Kings list. He didn't even tour last year. That's to call crazy. this a debut album is just completely valueless, meaningless thing. And also just super disingenuous because he's the most mainstream of rappers now. And that's not even a judgment statement. I'm just saying it's a stupid thing to project. He made a Super Bowl he did commercial. did the Kit Kat jingle. Like, you know, you, you've debuted. And frankly, my feelings about the album, the feelings about the music are influenced by the grand projections you're putting on this album and calling it your debut and it just rings really hollow to me and i just find it really annoying because again as people know i'm a fucking big chance the rapper fan i listened to ass and rap the day it came out i've seen him perform three times i'm a big chance fan but stop doing this it's really stupid i guess my question for you is the big day his his debut album uh at least that's what he's calling it was this a good album well it's really long. There's a lot of fat on it. Yeah. Um, like agonizingly long. This is what, an hour 10 minutes? Hour 15 minutes? This ain't a prime cut of steak. No. Don. And that's very curious coming from Chance, a guy who has always been really thoughtful in his sequencing and the overall vibes of his projects. Um, even the Merry Christmas Little Mama Jeremiah stuff was pretty tight, you know? And Coloring Book obviously had a really tight gospel-inspired vibe. And obviously Acid Rap is basically flawless. Like, to, to then have your debut, of all things, your debut, your big debut, be demonstrably less focused and more scattershot than your lauded mixtapes. It's not even like the, like the, old, the rock cliche, I like the old albums more. 
it's just that like it feels like he tried less on the new album you know it's um so is it is it a good album um i have a hard time calling it bad because i don't know if there's a lot of stuff that's bad here it's just the i think the intent the purpose the message is very unclear and i think for anyone who's a big chance fan i have a hard time understanding how you wouldn't be disappointed in this no is it bad i don't think it's bad right but it's it's incredibly underwhelming no i would agree i don't think it's bad um but i think it's important to put this into context so coloring coloring brick book drops 2016 since then like you said he is a high grossing rapper um number 14 last year uh he is incredibly mainstream i mean he is uh, a shill for kit kat and what was it doritos yeah. is that the one he did with backstreet boys that commercial one note on that too i just forgot so coloring books should be perceived as the debut album right as we just said going off that acid rap he covered the fader off of one mix of that mixtape in end of 2015 before coloring book was out he was the first independent unsigned artist to be on snl he did all of this with just that mixtape. So the, to call Coloring Book not your debut, again, is just kind of ignoring all the stuff Chance accomplished, as you were just saying. So I was like, I think people kind of forget about the context just because he's a present, he's all, he's all over the place. But I mean, if you really think about it, it's, it, it's quite the mental gymnastics, in my opinion. He has been uh, a symbol for Chicago and especially a, a Chicago activist recently. He got married recently. He's had a lot of life changes go on. I think as I was listening to this album, it, the, my first listen, I, I told I texted this to you. I heard it very much as like uh, a, a two half type album. The first half being like this lead up to this wedding and then the skits kind of kick in. And, it, you know, there's a lot of emotions and up and down in the first half. And I felt like the second half was much more like a, a radio power hour where the songs kind of flow together. My second listen, I didn't hear it so much that way, but I heard it as somebody trying to grapple with this transition in their life and what it means to be married, what it means to be moving into, uh, you know, a, a later stage, I guess a more subdued, a settled down stage in their life in a sense. Um, but I do agree. It felt scattered and it felt um, like all, some of the songs on there were songs that were obvious things that could be put in commercials or put into video games or, you know, that were just kind of fun, upbeat, maybe things that you could see on something like uh, TikTok yes. or something. Mm, um, sure. Just kind of like those like grabby, um, like yeah. catchy songs. Not necessarily something like you would have heard on uh, Coloring Book because that felt very curated to a specific message. Whereas this felt kind of like, well, my message is somewhere in here, but there's also going to be songs that people will just kind of bob their head to and can't, that can be played at a wedding right. or something like that. Yeah, and the thing about Coloring Book, like Coloring Book, it's not like Chance just decided now to like collab with like Capital R rappers on his own projects. Um, remember, no problem with Two Chains and Lil Wayne won Best Rap Performance at the Grammys, but no problem really felt like it it fit in Coloring Book even at the beginning of the track list. This time around, you have a song like Hot Shower with May in Tokyo and Da Baby, and it's a good Da Baby verse like most of his verses this year. Um, yeah. but what I don't, I just, what I just don't like is hearing Chance do basic, normal, contemporary rap. That's not what people want to hear from Chance, and that's also not his strength. Uh, he's, he, he's not a special rapper when he's doing that. 
Um, and I think he was doing a little bit on groceries, the loose single, you know, from a few months ago. But that had a really fun murder beats beat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's good enough, but it's also just a loose track. On Hot Shower, though, just like, oh, here's Chance just kind of making a rap song with some other rappers. And while Tokyo and Baby are, you know, solid or to good on the track, that that track, I feel like, doesn't fit with anything else that it was around, you know? And that just hasn't been a problem with him on past projects when he's collab with people, you know? like, And I just, man, it's just, it's just weird because... <laughs> I just like the as you said, the wedding vibe, the the things changing in Chance's personal life, clearly are framing the lyrical content in a certain sense. But I just don't think it's focused enough, or at least accessible enough for the listener, to uh, like pull through, you know, and like really hit home. Uh, and what you're left with is just like it feels like a lot of musing, or just songs that are just completely out of left mm-hmm. field. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just I've been having a hard time really sitting with the album because again it's so long and as I've been trying to go back and through, it really just feels like it really winds down uh in the middle, but then there's like six more tracks. And it's hard. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree with that. It, I, I think going back to my point, it almost feels like re- like chances caught in between being these two different types of artists right now uh you know there's the acid rap coloring book chance obviously that has a vision and has something he's trying to say and something that he wants to write about and i think there's also the persona chance you know uh, the ringer wrote a piece where he's kind of like the new will smith in a sense um and when you have that kind of persona you need to make songs that people that are inoffensive um and fun and get people moving but that doesn't necessarily lend uh, lend itself to a real artistic vision. It's very hard to blend those two things together. And I think that's kind of what came through. Now, does that make this a bad album or make any of these songs bad? Not necessarily, but I think that's probably what makes it feel so, uh, you know, scattered, so pulled apart is that I think he's trying to accomplish or hit too many bullseyes instead of just kind of focusing it down to one thing he's trying to do. That would be my, I guess, my perception of it. But like we said, we we like a lot of the stuff on this album. What songs or what 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 moments stood out? Yeah, to most? Um, early on, I I liked Eternal a lot with Smino. Uh, other note, I think unlisting your features is super obnoxious. Don't do this. So uh, annoying. <laughs> so, but shout out Genius. I'll give Genius more clicks as a result. Whatever. Um, yep. <laughs> Eternal with Smino, I really liked. I thought the you know it's really upbeat and you kind of got like the the swing with the you know side blinks don't dance like that you know that's fun um i like the steph mm-hmm. bar i made the three more famous than steph great line yeah great bar yep uh that song's fun uh and then honestly my uh <laughs> my favorite tracks are almost all in a row for the most part man it's uh let's go on the run with knox fortune uh they collabed an all night of calling book like that a lot uh big fish with gucci i like a lot ball and flossin with mm-hmm. Sean Mendes flipping yeah. the brandy, I want to be down one of her first hits onto an EDM beat. Like mm-hmm. that, that, that song is fucking like 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 cheating. Um, love it. <laughs> and then my uh, my favorite track, easily my favorite track, is "Handsome" with Megan The Stallion, and that reminds me of what I like about Chance the most. That that song sounds like that could have been on Coloring Book, and 
Chance is super fun and and the song is really upbeat and really awesome to listen to, but it also has lyrically the kind of like PG n- nature that we expect from Chance. And and also actually it's probably one of the best things about best songs that fits the themes of his album, the themes he's trying to convey in terms of talking about his girl and how she's still pretty when she's pregnant and stuff like that. And it's very very chance, but also very much fitting this 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 new thing he's trying to do. And then I think Megan's verse is really good. Um all the way through, even as she uh, switches it up towards the very back. So, the, but other than that, man, I'm having a hard time revisiting most of the tracks. Those like four or five are the ones I like the most. Yeah, you know, I I, I had um, the last two you mentioned there, um, Ball and Flossen, and uh, what was the other one? Let's you go said? on the run. Right. Yeah, so was... big fish. Yeah, yeah, uh, handsome. I really liked a lot. Um, but I had a. Uh, I had a moment listening to this. I was driving in the car my first time listening to it. And when Do You Remember comes on, uh, I was like, yeah, track, track two. I was like, who is this singing with him? And I was like, then it got then like it got around the second time. I'm like, is this freaking Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie? And it was. And I literally my I almost like had to pull over because I was so surprised. Uh, never a collaboration I thought I needed or would would like, but Chance and Death Cab uh, really enjoyed that song. It's probably like the the most nostalgic, sweetest song, and that that was a song that I also felt like could have been on like Coloring Book, just in terms of like the the theme of it and the sound. Um, yeah, you already mentioned it. Eternal is a really good one. Uh, yeah, and Ball and Flossen, just that song. Like you said, it's like cheating. It's so freaking good uh sean mendes on the yeah. track don the greek god himself <laughs> okay yeah that that guy is you can't miss right now um yeah but overall i, I agree it's not an album i think i'm gonna listen to straight through I mean, how do but, you have the time it's uh, just so long <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's almost like he did he did he he took the like uh just route with this where he's just like here's a bunch of tracks and they might sound like the other they might not but you have ones you want and uh enjoy it that way which is not what i expected from chance but that's where we are and it's not like it's still to game streams for money like it's no it's just kind of yeah it's it's a little baffling but uh we still love you chance uh i'll definitely try to catch him in concert when he comes around nyc I think that does it for the music this week. We spent a good amount of time talking about it. Why don't we move on to some TV? Big Little Lies, season two, wrapped up two weeks ago now. Man, uh, interesting season two. So we we covered the, what was it, the first episode? Maybe first two episodes, I think? First episode. First one. And it had this moment in the middle. What was it, the episode four? It's a seven-episode season. The end of episode four, it was a short episode had this really like dramatic ending where it was like cutting to a lot of different things kind of left you with like all these like questions and kind of wondering oh where is this going and then it felt like it came to a pretty anticlimactic ending and i'm kind of left wondering the same question i feel about one of the movies we'll be talking about did we need this did we need a second season of this was this really how we wanted the show to come back I feel like you kind of lost sight of what really made the show great. I see you laughing, so I'm guessing you're kind of on the same page as this. The first question everyone asked is the last one everyone asked. Did we need this? And the answer is the same. No, no, we didn't. Yeah, Big Little Last Season 2, man. It just, uh, 
it did not justify the need to return. I think season one, I liked it more than you, but I think most people would agree it was pretty tightly told story, partially because it's adapting Leanne Moriarty's novel, but it felt, you know, of a piece. And Sean Marfele did a good job with that. And everyone likes to see all these actors. That's the main appeal it is the breadth of movie A-list talent. And it was successful. And it won a fuck ton of Emmys the first time around. <laughs> Eight, eight of the 16 it was nominated for. And then having season two come back, you know, I expressed optimism. We talked about the premiere because it looked like they were giving Bonnie more to do, for example, someone who got the short shrift for the most part in season one. And obviously having Meryl Streep join your television show uh, sells itself. Yet, the story was, I don't know, kind of thin, man. Like, the whole thing with the investigation is dropped pretty quickly. It doesn't actually matter. Really, this season is more about the other lies they're all telling to themselves or their significant others or what have you. And having it not actually be about will they get away with the murder and having it deal with Mary Louise trying to take away uh, Nicole Kidman's kids. Um, well, again, I like Mary Louise a lot. She was fucking detestable great performance yeah. um she did her best to uh to save the season but it just uh it was a tough hang at times and i say that just because i i didn't say i never like really, really like disliked the show again all these actors just actors are just so compulsively watchable and really fun and laura dern though is renata is just for the memes in season two you know mm-hmm. but at service level shallow take that's still fun to enjoy i'll enjoy the memes i'll enjoy watching her freak the fuck out and break toys and shit but you know i it felt like madeline did not have a whole lot to do this season at all beyond go through some very vague conflict with adam scott that is resolved so they say yet not really sure how i mean she found Um, texts with him and that woman so it's obviously not honestly you know what right (laughs) Oh, shout out a fake boob uh, woman yeah. who just goes away. Um, okay, no, she um, she came back and was like, "Yeah, that's right." She just don't back. don't gotta complicate it. Let's just do it. Maybe we'll right. like it. I was like, "Wow, shoot your shot." I respect. Yeah, <laughs> but honestly, the, the, what the was a tough hang was Bonnie. Again, I love Zoe Kravitz; she's great. But having her just be running in the woods or sad and moping around at home or in a hospital room. It's just not fun to watch. And also, it's a bit uh, concerning that they do not explore something that she wanted to explore in season two. The fact that she's the only person of color seemingly in the town of Monterey, um, <laughs> which is probably kind of accurate. And also, I think even even worse is that when her mom comes around, she's the stereotypical um, mystical black person. You know, we, we, we've seen that a lot. It's uh, uh, It just wasn't the greatest look, but even more importantly, the storyline was just weak. And man, like I, well, I, I'd never really had a hard time watching the show, but the David E. Kelly scripts, man, just felt like uh, they, they were really lacking. And that makes a lot of sense considering all the behind the scenes stuff that IndieWire broke regarding the HBO taking away the, sh- the show from Andrea Arnold after she shot the show and basically having Jean-Marc Valet co- come back in and just cut it up and I mean, there's 11 editors credited on the show. That's kind of a lot. 
but it, it stood out. And, you know, I, I don't really care for a season three just because I don't know where we're supposed to go from here. You know, it's funny because it, your point about uh, the conflict and, and just the writing on the show feeling thin, is de- it's definitely a great point. But I think what made season one so much fun, I mean, it had some deeper themes. You know, it had uh, the obviously the abuse going on between Alexander Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman. Um, but what people liked was just the ridiculousness of it. And uh, the the moments where, you know, it's like Renata versus Madeline, and, um, them trying to like one up each other in these ludicrous ways, like through their right. kids and being absurd moms at school. Shit like and, that. Yeah. And I almost feel like them teaming up and having, you know, like one big bad in Meryl Streep who really wasn't, I mean, she was like a big bad, I guess, but I don't know. The conflict was mostly between just her and Nicole Kidman and these people on the peripheral. It felt kind of like you're taking away the heartbeat of the show, which is that you should be pitting these women against each other and letting them like do ridiculous stuff. And uh, them being all on the same team, I think, took a real element out of it that was a driving force. There were obviously where there's still those ridiculous moments like that, especially with Renata trying to maintain her image of wealth, which... I actually think were probably some of the most fun moments. Her smashing yeah. the stuff in the room, her having that ridiculous like sixties party or seventies party at her house. Like those moments were fun. But the moments where it's like Madeline trying to get Ed back or Jane and her boyfriend, uh, or oh, like God. you said, Bonnie and her mom and everything with that, it just felt like a tough hang a lot of the time and Yeah. I agree. <sighs> you know, it it just needed to be more soapy. You know? Yeah. Seriously. More drama. <laughs> and even if they're all on the same side okay, we all expected the investigation to perhaps right. provide that drama, and it just didn't. No. Um, and having them walk in at the end to turn themselves in together, uh, I thought was a, a nice way to wrap it up considering where they took it, but just does kind of feel like a like a half measure in terms of we're not going to actually explore this at all because it's all about the lies we told along the way, man. <laughs> and, you know, it's... um. I just wanted to be more, uh, more dramatic than it was. And again, I like all these actors, but it's uh, just underwhelming. And I don't know how much of Andrea Arnold's original cut would have changed this, considering it was still David E. Kelly's scripts. Um, but it's interesting, you know, this averaged 41% more viewers per episode. Uh, about 12 million people would watch this show every week, you know, counting all the different measures. So... So very much a hit for HBO, and next year I'm sure they'll run it all in the limited series. Well, it in, in the Emmys, it's not a limited series anymore. But you figure Meryl Streep is a lock to get nominated at the very least. But you know, I just uh, I just kind of lost my excitement for it as it went on, even if I wasn't hating what I was watching or anything like that. Um, also, shout out Shailene's uh, bangs; they're horrendous <laughs> throughout the whole show. But whatever. Did did you know Nicole Kidman always wears wigs? Sometimes they stand out. Uh, was she wearing a wig in this? Apparently, that that's what I was. Oh. I found out. Okay. Uh, n- no idea. I actually don't know if I know what her hair looks like. To be honest. So, anyways, I want to move on to something I think we liked a bit more. The farewell. Lulu Wang uh, wrote and directed. Wong, bro. Wong, come on, man. Lulu Wong, fucking Americans. wrote and directed this. Uh, this film that has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomato right now. Damn right. And my my first 
takeaway, something I actually thought about while I was watching the film was just give Aquafina more serious roles. Like, stop typecasting her as this, like, goofy Asian friend uh, in a lot of these and let her actually show her chops. Because I thought she was fantastic in this. Um, there's she will so be much... in Shang-Chi. Maybe that'll that'll be what you want for yeah, Marvel. That's... Maybe, but I want to see her doing things like this, like these indie yeah. films. She was so good. No what, what was your takeaway of the film? Oh, yeah. This movie, like, blew me away. This I, I loved it. Um, I went in. Not, I don't even know if I watched the trailer, to be honest. I just knew it was a Sundance hit. I knew A24 picked it up, and I knew the, the Rotten Tomatoes rating was so strong. And I knew Aquafina was in it. That was really all I think I knew about it. Um, and yeah, I was just, I, I loved it the whole time. I think the, there's not really much to spoil. You know, the premise um, is that Aquafina is uh, living in New York City, and she travels back to uh, northern China with her family to with her grandmother who is dying of in term, uh, terminal cancer but per Chinese custom they won't actually tell her that so they use this farce of a wedding to justify bringing the family together to say their goodbyes quote unquote and that's really all the premise is to the movie and obviously you can maybe guess where, 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 where the threads go from there but I just really liked how it weighed drama and comedy uh, seriousness and levity and having Aquafina show a lot of range uh, you know again as she had an actress who we've only really seen do comedic work uh, was great and for it's Luang's second feature film or first of major note and uh, quite the quite the debut man I liked it a lot What'd yeah you think? no uh, you know the thing that they, you said blew you away was how it really balance the scales between humor and drama and sadness. Um, but I think what I was most impressed with was how the writing and the storytelling really left you feeling the conflict of the characters. You know, both side, uh, Aquafina's family, uh, Billy's family, and her uncle's family uh, both have a different perspective. Uh, you know, share, shared in some ways and different in others. There's a huge what's better China or America conversation at one point. Um, but even like what they should do about telling uh, Nai Nai uh, about her illness that, you know, you go in, you're kind of like on the side of Aquafina, like, Oh, they should absolutely tell her like Billy's right. But slowly you start to see all the different perspectives and you just kind of leave like conflicted. You're like, I don't know what's the right thing to do. It doesn't <laughs> vilify the, the stance that, people like us from America immediately think is unethical. Exactly. And it's done in such a smart way. And it, re uh, you know, there's that, that scene and that image of her sitting on the floor in that pink room as her cousin's bride is trying to find her earring or whatever. And she breaks oh, yeah. down crying about how hard it was, you know, that when she moved to America and how she wants to stay with Nai Nai now. And uh, that scene just sticks in my mind. Cause I really think that embodies or captures the film so beautifully you know this like very basic setting that is still visually captivating where you see this character going through this range of emotions and just kind of left feeling unsure about everything i think that really captures something about this sort of transition in life that not many films do this well and i just really uh really impressed with uh wong's writing on this um 
I think she's got a great career ahead of her, especially telling these sort of stories. Yeah, it's funny. This was actually uh, this story was actually told on This American Life after Lulu struggled to get it made as a film the way she wanted. Um, but yeah, I mean the fact that it's uh, you know it's majority in in Mandarin. Uh, I I don't think that really hurts at all. I mean, obviously it, it's you know you have to keep looking down, you lose the facial expressions at times, but. Uh, even if I'm re- I'm re- reading it, the writing is so strong that uh, like all, all the laughs still hit. Like you know, my theater uh was pretty full. I saw it. I think I saw it two weeks ago, and the laugh lines all hit, and also the sad stuff. Like it was a, it was a dusty theater at the end where I was. Oh yeah, and honestly, I mean, there's there's so many so many great moments. You know, I think oh, there's a lot of like settings and meals. Um, and hotel rooms i guess those are i think the the two best areas that for the scenes but i think the cemetery scene really stands out uh just uh, because it's it's pretty brief but it kind of captures all the characters at once and uh <laughs> i just remember the line that he's like oh, no no he, he didn't quit smoking he just told you that to make you feel better <laughs> yeah <laughs> fucking pitch perfect i know so and good. meanwhile this th- this whole time the, the farce of the wedding with um the cousin's girlfriend who doesn't even speak mandarin at all she only speaks japanese and she's yep. just like so confused about what the fuck's going on the whole time and they just play it for laughs in such a smart way um a lot of good food jokes it's it, it it's really really joyous yeah and i thought the actual wedding was really funny too seeing the cousin get just like super drunk um you know the uncle like going up there <laughs> and starting to cry and just like it seemed like such a weird reaction it was just uh and then seeing um her and her dad sing no scrubs i was like oh this is really really fun um really i think just hit so many different marks so well and shout out to uh zao shuzen the the grandmother nine i was like the most amazing hater yeah i couldn't believe it she just blew me away infectious lovable i, I kind of want her to be my grandmother in a sense you know she's she, awesome. this is great um any other thoughts before we move on? This movie's doing very well at the box office, which is very exciting. Uh, it's been in limited release, 100-ish theaters for three weeks now. Uh, it's going wide this week, opposite Hobbs and Shaw, that counter-programming. But it's funny, limited release, right? It's already at the $3.68 million domestically. That ranks 24th out of the 77 movies A24 has distributed. And they haven't even gone wide with it yet. So it, I'm really happy this movie found an audience, given that it is a movie with subtitles. It's a small-scale movie. Aquafina's not an A-lister in the traditional sense. So that's just uh, awesome to see. And I hope it continues to do well as it uh, expands this week. Everyone will have a chance to watch it. So I hope that uh, this trend continues, because it's a movie that is worth everyone's time, obviously. From small-scale to big-scale, probably the biggest scale, Lion King. We're a little late on this one, so maybe we can keep this one a little bit shorter. But John Favreau's live-action Lion King, with just an absolutely stacked cast: Donald Glover, Beyonce, Seth Rogen, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, uh, Billy Ejiofor. Eichner, yeah, yeah. Yep. John Oliver, Keegan Michael Key, Eric Andre. Isn't that the kid from uh from Us? Us. Yeah. J- so, JD JD McCrary is Simba. Then, Who's young girl? Oh yeah, Shahadi Wright Joseph. Yes, who is in us? Yeah, yeah, and fantastic in us. She's great. She's killing it. Yeah. So again, 
Big Little Lies, I kind of premise this, but did we need this movie? Sitting at 53% Rotten Tomatoes. It's the same question we have for all these live action remakes. Did we need this? Where do you stand, Dave? Let's start there. Here's the thing. Beauty and the Beast remake, even Aladdin, which surprised us this year. Those movies at least endeavor to change things or add to the story in such a way that it didn't feel like a carbon copy. And thus, I was more okay with it. You know, I feel like if you're of the frame of mind that all these remakes are a waste of time, make something else instead. You can't then also be a stickler for sticking to the source material. Right. So thus, I always had an open mind about Will Smith, and I actually liked what they did with him in Aladdin, right? The problem with The Lion King is, when we carry in the stream of reference, is they managed to change virtually nothing, yet making the movie 30 minutes longer in the process. And the whole time... I'm just watching this, and I mean, we all know what's going to happen. We know the beats. That's fine. But perhaps it's the animation, which on itself is fucking gorgeous and yep. incredibly impressive. It's a technological masterpiece for sure. But I did not get the emotional beats from the faces of these photorealistic animals. Thus, nothing was really landing for me. If the emotional beats of animals talking aren't landing for you, I don't know what else the movie can do for you because almost all the songs are truncated from the original version, despite the movie being longer. Don't really understand how that happened. And arguably the best part of the original Lion King, Scar, with Jeremy Irons, the performance from Edge of Four, I think, is strong in a vacuum. He has a rich voice, mm-hmm. but Scar, the original Scar, is just much more flamboyant. I think Irons, who's just a, you know, capital T thespian, just really brings it. Such a memorable performance and characterization. And Scar just felt just more down-the-middle villainous this time around. Like, yes, yeah. there are some more uh, sentences spoken about his uh, dislike of his older brother, Mufasa, being in the movie. And I saw some people saying, oh, well, we understand Scar's motivations more now. <laughs> this movie's better for that. That voice. But... The performance is not as uh, not as strong. Yeah, man. If you're if you're doing Scar, just to cut you off real quick. If you're doing Scar and you don't do like a really serious like long live the king, and you shorten it to <laughs> long live the king, and just hit him in the face, like you really just yeah. you're, you're missing the point. Right. And again, I'm not telling you to carbon copy. By all means, make changes like the swipe right that you just referenced. Mm-hmm. But and like, and like just like Scar's design is different. yeah. I Scar's design was cool. Yeah. You know. Rafiki, some changes with that with his with his staff and stuff. Fine, whatever. But I just don't think the emotional beats really hit at all. And you know another thing I really noticed too, watching this time around, you're with the kids a lot, man. Mm-hmm. You don't really get the adults that much. Meaning you don't get a lot of Donald Glover and Beyonce. And then when I'm watching it, I'm like, oh wait a minute, I'm not liking Donald Glover and Beyonce's performances with this at all. I thought I thought DG was pretty pretty mediocre and reading the lines. Yeah, and Beyonce was just. I felt like she wasn't given the right direction to fit where they were going. And can I can I make an assumption for you that your three favorite performances were probably Billy Eichner as Timon, Seth Rogen as Pumbaa, and John Oliver as Zazu? Yeah, Oliver as Zazu. I thought um I thought the Keo Michael Key and Andre they they had some funny quips as the hyenas. Yeah, cool. But the the thing about all five of those characters is they got to do something with their characters. You know, they got to take take chances, like mix it up a little bit from their originals. Donald Glover and Beyonce, I guess other than Beyonce's song, pretty much had to do just read the lines from the original Lion King. They were like, yeah, these these 
characters on the peripherals, these supporting characters, we'll, we'll let you change those up, but Nala and Simba, that's and Mufasa, th- those are characters we can't change anything about that. And, and it's not even like you need to change something dramatic about their background, but just let Donald Glover be Donald Glover. Let him say some weird, crazy shit and see how right. it goes. I mean, seems like they were like, this part is something that's unchangeable and that yeah. handcuffed them. I mean, can't you feel the love tonight happens during the day? Fine, whatever. But at that right. time where Simba's in his like early 20s stoner, stoner mindset, right? DG could have done great with that if maybe he could have communicated yeah. that better. But mm-hmm. I, I'd really just, there was an uncanny value for me, which does not happen often, but like with the, the voice the voice work mixing with the lion's faces. And it's like, like even in the beginning of Ufasa's like, I'm still your dad. In the original, it's this fucking hammer line musical drop feels moment when they start like wrestling in the, in the grass and stuff and you look at Mufasa's face in this new one it's just fucking stone cold man because there's nothing communicated because he's a realistic looking lion yeah. so it just does it just didn't work for me yeah and I think that just speaks to um, what you lose with these live action remakes is you lose a lot of the magic of it and something like Aladdin you can capture a lot of that like the magic carpet the genie were pretty good for the most part not as good as the original but still pretty good this i mean when you do i just can't wait to be king and you don't have that like animal period uh pyramid that kind of like is the the crescendo of it so to speak or you know even like like we talked about the uh the scene of them singing hakuna matata that was previewed on i think it was late Mm -hmm. night with jimmy kimmel or good morning there christians like that and we're kind of like ah well you know they're not going to be able to to do the, some of the things they normally do like they're not going to be able to do the head bob because those animals wouldn't mm-hmm. actually do that they're not going to swing from vines into the water but those add such just like magical like wonderment to the original that you just can't capture with these and especially uh, one like lion king i think suffers from that because like you said they're animals and you can't replicate some of the things that you could if it, like with aladdin where they're, they're humans or even beauty and the beast where they right. become humans. i mean i think like mostly I was, I was really blown away by billy eichner as timon totally takes it over yeah. he, fantastic and the be your guest cameo joke <laughs> fucking choice and rogan as well as pumbaa yeah. really played off eichner well and you know he did some of those classic uh, understated deliveries that he does when he's like in call and response and they 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 were both great, but it's a problem when those are the people blowing you away because those are supporting characters that don't show up until the end of Act Two, and mm-hmm. you know it's just uh, uh, man, you know I'm just uh, I'm, you know I, watching it again because I watched the damn near all of the original Lion King on YouTube because most of the movie is on YouTube and the clip channels and stuff. What stood out to me was the gorge scene, shocker, but like in the beginning of it when Scar runs to Mufasa and he like feigns, you know, uh, obviously like desperation and fear when he's telling him what's happening. The faces on Mufasa and Scar really communicate that emotion. Right. And when that happened this time around, there's nothing. I know I've said this 10 times already, but like I, I just can't feel anything. So... It's 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 the first of these remakes where I'm like, it's hard to find much redeeming about it, and I didn't actually expect. I thought this was arguably the safest of all the remakes, but I guess I didn't didn't factor in the uh, the animal faces of it all. So, but 
Not that they they care about what I think. This movie made 191.7 million in its first weekend, which is a July record, breaking the mark set by Deathly Hallows Part Two, and uh, was the second highest debut of the year, the largest PG rated debut of the year, and now gives Disney 13 of the top 15 largest opening weekends. So Disney don't give a shit. Yep. So far, it's uh, it's grossed what 350.8 million. Uh, in North yep. America, yeah. is that right? That's like right with Spider-Man already. Close to a billion, 962.7 worldwide. Pretty uh, amazing that it's still pulling this. Also, Disney has grossed nearly $8 billion from the movies this year. Pretty pretty nuts. Go see The Farewell. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, please go see The Farewell. Why don't we move on to another film I think we both think you should go see. Quentin Tarantino's ninth, ninth, ninth tenth film. I see people... You- Getting this confused. Yeah. Combining Kill Bill together, uh, it makes nine. Right. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, sitting at 85% on Rotten Tomatoes, $40 million opening weekend. Whew, this is not what I expected oh, it really? was going to be. And it, it it left me confused at first in the theater. And then once I kind of figured out, I was like, oh, this is great. Um, I really enjoyed it. I think this is probably, I mean, this is, I, I really like Django, so it's hard to say my favorite since some glorious bastards, but it's, it, we'll, we'll talk about where it falls in our QT rankings probably at the end, but it's, it's close to top five, I think. How did you feel about this ninth film from Quentin Tarantino? Right, so this movie is two hours and 40 minutes long, and despite all that, God, I was like spellbound the whole time. I I was just honestly really blown away with so much of it you know it's we've always known tarantino is such a lover of old school hollywood and has this granular encyclopedic knowledge of shit that wasn't even popular or well known or even well liked right like he's he's just a a huge nerd in that regard and lately the past few years he's made lots of movies that are more pastiche following his 90s run we talked all about this last week with our tarantino discussion so check about check out that for more about that but knowing all that about Quentin tarantino and then knowing he's making a movie about the thing he loves the most hollywood specifically the late 60s the golden age of it all definitely presented a uh, an opportunity where you could maybe f- think maybe he would just do what he always wanted to do. And sure enough, he just recreated Los Angeles in 1969. And it's just like the most believable thing ever, despite the fact that there's fantastical aspects of the story and where it goes. And I just, I fucking loved it, man. And I thought, I mean, having Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt join up for the first time uh, is a flex in and of itself. But I think they're both fantastic, especially DiCaprio, who is asked to carry a lot and uh succeeds for sure we'll get into that but you know i mean it has tons of cameos tons of actors young and old that we've seen from his movies before and other newcomers and uh man it's just there's so much here and i just want to watch it again just to now look for things now i know what's happening but i i was kind of blown away well old boy it's official Rick Dalton's a has-been. I'm a nobody. <laughs> eight whiskey sours. You could have four. Yeah. You had to have eight. You couldn't stop at four. I'm a fucking alcoholic. <laughs> All right, that's it. From here on out, no more. 
takes out the flask, starts drinking it immediately. I was like, <laughs> so good. Um, yeah, DiCaprio is uh, the first the first thing I really want to talk about because I mean, Tarantino always gets something impressive out of him. You, know, you think about him as Calvin Candy and Django, and mm-hmm. he's in that movie for like what, like thirty minutes out of like a two-hour movie, yeah. and he got nominated for a supporting actor. Um, yeah, and just unbelievable. He steals almost every scene he's in. That uh, I feel like he's almost better in this. This might be my he's better than this. DiCaprio since what Departed? Maybe I don't even know if I'd say Departed. I mean. I mean, did you not like Revenant? You didn't like watching him get fucked up by a bear in CGI. <laughs> he, he he was he was good in that, but it it's such a no. This is, no, this is better than that. Yeah, obviously. such a survival performance in that. It's this is he gets just to be so. I, I think Wolf of Wall Street's probably the uh, the one yeah. to go with, just because that's such a charismatic, showy performance. A lot but of meat on that bone. E- either way, this is this is top tier Leo, which is really impressive to say because Leo's in his what late forties. Like, yeah. They're on the block forever at this point. Yeah. Uh, he He's just magnetic in this film and plays this really sweet, insecure star. Super supposed insecure. To, supposed to be like Burt Reynolds-ish, I guess. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, he... You know, there's that scene in the trailer where the little girl says, that's the best acting I've ever seen. And he starts to tear up. And uh, I feel like that really captures that character so well. You know, he's that that insecurity drives him at all times and uh the way that he interplays with brad pitt's uh cliff booth booth um is so good because basically they're just like all right you're gonna be this insecure movie star and you're just gonna be a mix of aldo and rusty from uh oceans, uh, oceans 11 and man uh brad pitt it was really fun to watch him and even though I mean his character, I think is uh, is not as not as fun to watch as Leo. Obviously, still every time you're with him, you really just kind of get into the scene. Like I was really worried about him when he goes up to Spawn Ranch and just yeah. like the eeriness of that and that that scene just in general left me just flabbergasted. Um, right. And I think, and this is just kind of circling back to where we started. My expectations for this movie was that this would be a little bit more like, you know, like a Pulp Fiction or something like that. Um, but really, it felt more like Jackie Brown um, yeah, in a lot of ways. Definitely. It's warm. And yeah, really warm, really uh, sweet, um, but really had moments where your anxiety was really up. And he builds that tension, that drama so well, so masterfully. He's, I mean, Tarantino is just obviously one of the best directors of our time. Um what other characters or performances stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, well, just another thing on Pitt. When they show him uh, leaving uh, Rick's house, I think, believe to go home for the first time, and you see him just whip it down, was it Sunset or Iowa Boulevard, wherever yeah. it was, and it's just recreated 60s L.A. street the whole time. Meanwhile, he's fucking flying down this road. I mean, I could have watched him just drive for 30 minutes. That was fucking epic. <laughs> and, but, oh my god. Honestly, I mean, you Spawn Ranch, right? There are real-life characters in this movie. That's kind of the obvious stuff. The Manson uh, family is here. The Manson murders are here. Sharon Tate is Margot Robbie. And your whole time you're set up to expect to see that murder. And it's like, oh, is that Tar- distasteful Tarantino again? No, no, it's another, actually, it's another alt history like inglorious and find that out in time but seeing 
all the real life characters and real life references, even beyond the obvious stuff like the Mansons, like like Damian Lewis cameos as as fucking Steve McQueen at yeah. the Playboy Mansion scene and just has like, you know, like four lines. Um and later on you have Leo, uh you see a scene of Leo if he was actually in the Great Escape, that that Steve McQueen uh classic movie, and like apparently Rick had you know lost out for it and Oh man, it's just the world is just inc- this, this fictional all LA is just drawn to a T in such a way that whether it's real life figures or background settings or the intricacy of the TV production landscape that uh, that Leo's going through, man, it's just God. There's just so much going on. It's awesome, but yeah, uh, I think yeah. I think Pitt. Pitt, you're right. Pitt plays more of an everyman. Something we've seen a little bit more from Pitt, where he's just kind of a charismatic. He's a talker, but it's not as showy as Rick by design. And actually, it would have been nice if Rick and Cliff had, I think, even more scenes together. They actually kind of are apart for a large stretch of the movie. Um, I mean, I mean, it's funny. There's a lot. I mean, a lot of these flashback scenes. Sometimes they're flashbacks to Rick on the set of something he had made in the past. Yeah. But I think one of the one of the standout ones, of course, is when Cliff's on the roof and he's just thinking back <laughs> about why other. he couldn't be the stunt man. And it's like this fifteen minute thing, and you're like, "Where is this going? Oh wait, that's where it went. This is awesome." Meanwhile, we got to see him fucking fight Bruce Lee. Yeah, like, on the set of the Green Hornet, awesome. just unbelievable. Um, and Mike yeah. Moe was awesome as Bruce Lee. What a what a freaking flex by Tarantino, like writing this script and be like, I'm just going to have a 15 minute like memory of Brad Pitt fighting Bruce Lee. And this is, I think really what's at the heart of this is Tarantino just wanted to make this movie where he had all these ideas about Hollywood and these what ifs and these fun, like quips or stories he might've thought of or heard like third hand. He just wanted to like put them all in a movie somehow. And it's just makes it, so much fun to to go story to story and where you know i got i got to about the uh the, the part where it jumps forward six months and i was like right italy not much has happened in this movie you know <laughs> like it, this really took place around like what like three days or something like that maybe two days and right apart from the flashbacks yeah and then all of a sudden we jump forward six months and i'm like how are we jumping forward at this point? Like how much time is left? I don't understand where this movie's going. And then, you know, it, it gets into the Tarantino ultra violent kind of uh rewriting history a bit. Um but even then, I feel like he infuses humor so well. Um and this is something we talked about last week when we reviewed a lot of our Tarantino movies, but this is kind of like where he snaps back into like Django or Inglorious Bastards Tarantino instead of like Jackie Brown, where you know you have the uh, the Manson family in the car and they start like fighting with each other about not knowing who Rick Dalton is. Sorry, I don't know every fucking fascist on television, Sharon. Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> and just like then Brad Pitt smoking that cigarette dipped in acid and not knowing if what was happening was real or not added such a funny element to the whole like break-in i was just like amazed at how and then <laughs> brad or uh, leonardo dicaprio rick dalton literally just filleting that girl in the pool i was just like this this mm-hmm. is some extra Callback shit too. 
but so good just so good in so many ways so uh a lot to love about this um what else stood out to you or what else did you like i know there's a lot to oh of course um i thought pacino was really good as marvin schwartz not schwartz <laughs> the uh the producer uh i thought he, he made a nice impression early on um austin butler really impressed me as tex who is the real life one of the real life murderers of course and I'm a lot more excited about him playing Elvis in the Baz Luhrmann Elvis movie now because he was just cast in that. Um, I, I liked him a lot. Um, and that devil, uh, I'm the, you're doing the devil's work line or whatever is actually what Tex Watson really said in real life, um, which is kind of kind of scary. I also love Margaret Qualley as a pussycat, uh, one of the Manson girls. Uh, obviously, we know her from Leftovers. And I mean, there's just, <laughs> I mean, who, who else was there? Lena Dunham was one of the girls. Um Sydney Sweeney from Euphoria was there. Uh, Dakota Fanning, of course, was Squeaky, uh, who later goes to jail for trying to assassinate President Ford. Oh, there's a lot of real people in this. Um, and then, of course, like in the ultimate Tarantino flex, you just have all these uh, cameos from people that barely have a few lines, right? Like Oliphant's in here, Scoot McNary, Clifton Collins, Damian Lewis, as I said. Scoot um, McNary being just like an extra for like one line of dialogue. And I was like, what? Like unbelievable um yeah i mean even uh sorry i'm I'm forgetting his name but uh from reservoir dogs mark the guy who cuts the guy's ear off uh oh michael madsen yeah michael madsen yeah he Uh, shows up bounty law yeah one line on bounty law and like that's it it's just super cool to see all these people just kind of like pop in and out we haven't even talked about margot robbie um playing sharon tate um you know there's some controversy after this premiered at can about how uh tarantino wrote this role but didn't really give margot robbie a lot to do uh or to say um how did you feel about her portrayal of tate and kind of her lack of dialogue in the film? right um and i i, I did think margot uh, at that time responded well saying that she you know read the script and knew what role she was signing up for so i feel like a lot of people were like kind of like ignoring her thoughts on the matter when charging Tarantino with this. So I thought she handled that well, but yeah, I, um, I really liked, I like what she did. And I thought I like what Quinn was doing with it because I mean, I, the best moment for her is probably when she goes walking down the whatever street that was and goes to see one of her movies in the theater and seeing her just be amongst the, the public and listen to people laugh or, you know, or, 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 or you know, be scared at the moments they're supposed to in one of Tate's actual movies, right? And it just felt like it was kind of celebrating who Sharon Tate was um, and who she could have been if had she not been tragically murdered, you know? Um, and while, yes, she's not the focus of the story by any means, um, I think the fact that she survives at the end also goes a long way. Um, it might have, there might have been more charges of exploitation you know, you're exploiting the tragedy for your story if you kind of kill her off without her having much say in the matter uh, if you did the movie differently. But I think ultimately that that's, that movie theater scene um, really just kind of makes you think about what, what, what could have been, of course. And it also adds into, I mean, there's a lot of other meta stuff going on in this movie and a lot of other commentary. So it just kind of fit the the vibe him was, Quentin was going. But what did you think? Did you want more from from margo because again she she isn't in the movie a whole lot to be fair yeah i I mean i think i did want a little bit more uh but i didn't really have a problem with 
the way the role was written. She's magnetic every time she's on screen. You know, just you just can't take your eyes off her. And I mean, it helps that she's just an incredibly beautiful person. But really, just her her overall spirit and charisma shine through no matter what role she's playing. Um, yeah, that I loved that movie, that movie theater scene, like watching her like bop down the street, the way it like followed her shoes as she's walking down the street. I thought it was a really cool shot. So, you know, seeing her like look around the movie theater as they're watching the Wrecking Crew. Um, you know, that Dean Martin film that Sharon Tate was in was really cool. And actually, like, then seeing the actual Sharon Tate on screen, I felt like was like a nice, like, nod. Um, just really, really uh, well done. And also with her at the Playboy Mansion scene dancing, you already kind of talked about it with Damian Lewis as Steve McQueen. But I thought she was, like, magnetic in that as well and fun to, like, watch her, like, be like a 60s hippie type person at that point. Um, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about uh, things that really stood out to me about the film. And what I really liked about this movie was how quickly it put you into place. Uh, you know, it really made you feel like you were in L.A. Uh, the setting, the set design, um, you know, showing the, the different uh, restaurants and uh, really actually showing like the old school places I thought was really great. Um, and then also the music in this was really really well done um the first song that came to, that comes to my mind when i think about this is hush by i think it's deep purple um that plays i think earlier in, in it but then there's also a, a good rolling stones drop later on um i'm forgetting what the song is at this time uh but there was just a lot of really good song drops and i felt like it really gave you a sense of place very quickly so just overall really really oh and of course the mrs robinson drop when uh pitt's watching the, um, the i think you got across the street. that nails him just a really wonderful um, movie moment i felt like any, any songs or anything yeah. like that that stood out to you uh well so here's the thing man like he, a lot of his movies don't have like a a, a grand where's this fall for you meta textual message all the time and movies don't need to do that but in once upon a time in hollywood quentin is i think kind of expertly commenting on his own mortality as a creative a filmmaker a person that people care about what he does through the prism of rick dalton a has-been actor who's definitely on the downswing um and i think that message about finding uh self-worth in your later years and you know it's also connected to cliff where cliff has been struggling to get work and as rick uh, is on the downswing. He no longer can keep Cliff going as well. Like, I think that's what really, what really sticks with me is that there really is a lot going on in terms of commentary in this movie that also happens to be this incredible period piece that involves lots of real, pe- real people. And I think that's what will stick with me the most. Um, and in terms of where it ranks, um, I think top five for sure. I think that's that's safe ass bar. Um, I mean, my f- what I say, I pulp, pulp, Kill Bill, and Bastards are. And I had Reservoir's four. I mean, shit. This might be three or four. I don't know. Oh, I really want to see it again, man. For sure. Four or five. It's tough. Wow. Topping bastards, damn. It says a lot. I'd probably have it. I'd probably have it right around five. Um, 
you know, Django, Bastards, Pulp are pretty unassailable. Yeah. For me, I mean, um, the thing is, it's like, like this. So, like, you know, I really feels like, like it's like the opus of Tarantino, and like that's to say it's his nice, you know, his best movie, like to, like capital B best. But like, I now I'm just like <clears throat> just thinking like, where does he go from here <clears throat> for that tenth movie? Like, what what does he do now? Like, because you just did so much in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's like, you take a step back. Do you do like a like the way Hateful Eight felt? After Django, like I'm just not sure where to go from here. It almost feels like this was his swan song of a movie because it's literally everything he's ever wanted to 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 explore. And you know, another thing, it's like in our commentary, like Tarantino almost struggled as an actor first, right? And that's another thing that you can just there's just so many through lines and like things you can. I mean, heck, he even makes fun of the foot fetish charge he's had in his movies in this, you know. And meanwhile, there's red apple cigarettes because, of course, there is. Like, God, there's just so much here. <laughs> yeah, all all the callbacks to his other movies. You know, one of the Italian directors is Antonio Margheriti, um, and the the dog food is Wolf's dog food, uh, referring back to Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction. And you know, obviously, the the one that everybody yeah. got was the the sauerkraut. Uh, what was it like a fi- like fire sauerkraut or the heated up sauerkraut, whatever flamethrower from Rick Dalton in the movie? Um, but he really, I think, th- there's this is a film I think where people are gonna have to see two or three times to really uh, see everything, appreciate everything to the level it is, and I think that just speaks to Tarantino's greatness. Right. And um, I I really hope this continues to do well at the box office and gets the shine that it deserves because. Uh, I think the more and more people watch this and more and more they'll start to think about films in a different way because I think this really challenges your idea of like what the what movies can I be mean, and, and that's you what you hope it does well, well you know it did make 40 million and change any last thoughts before we wrap weekend, up which is a, actually a high watermark for Quentin and that's despite the fact well, you know, it's an R-rated movie that's 2 hours and 40 minutes long and adults don't actually flock the way opening weekends do the way younger demos do so you hope that this movie will have good legs the way like Django did, the way Bastards did. Um, and it was, it was, it was, it's the most expensive film to date. It's also his widest release film to date. And against his first film without Weinstein involved, um, Sony of all people actually has it. So good win for them uh, yet, yet again after Spider-Man. Um, interestingly enough, he had this, he negotiated this uh, unique copyright agreement where after 30 years or so that it'll actually revert back to him. So that's something not very common for directors, even big name directors. And apparently the reason Warner Brothers couldn't finish the deal with Quentin is because everyone was saying, well, if you do this copyright deal with QT, then you're also going to have to do it with Nolan next time. And because Sony has a smaller stable of, uh, you know, directors that they work with a lot, they could take this chance and nail down doing the Quentin movie. So pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I hope it does well and uh, good start. So that's that's great. Yeah, definitely interesting. We really so uh, we ran the gambit here today. Next Good, week. bad. We have a uh, Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw, for which week? I'm looking forward to just because I've seen all the other Fast and Furious movies. So I'll <laughs> definitely report back on how that goes. Um, I also plan to see The Art of Self-Defense, this small indie black comedy movie with Jesse Eisenberg. It's supposed to be great. Uh, it's been out a few weeks now. And other than that, man, 
we might do some, we'll maybe catch up on something else. There's really no music that we know of as of now. Um, no shows ending or really starting yet. Again, that's next the week after. So we'll, we'll find more, but that's all I got right now. So uh, tune in to Nostalgia next week for all that awesome content we'll be bringing you. Uh, we'll, we'll find some stuff to talk about for sure. Uh, follow us at NostalgiaPod on Twitter and uh, go to SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod to find all the ways to catch the podcast. And lastly, give us a five-star rating review on iTunes and a subscription on YouTube. Yes. Uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah.